Judges 8, verse 4. This has been kind of a long, long passage about Gideon. We've been in here for the last few weeks. We have a lot of details about what happened with Gideon and the Midianites and uh, all those that were coming against Israel. We've kind of kind of seen more detail in this story than we have the previous judges before. And we've covered a lot of ground, both uh, as far as uh, verses that we've covered. Uh, covered. Uh, we've also covered a lot of ground as far on our map as all the things that are going on here. And so we're covering some more ground tonight uh, as Gideon and the rest of the Israelites that have, that have come to their aid as they begin to team up are driving the Midianites and the Ketamites are the sons of the east. They're driving them out of the promised land and they're driving them back this way, back this direction. So up until this point, all the things that have been going on have been going on up here. This is where the fighting took place. Now, last week we saw uh, that Gideon had caught in some reinforcements. Uh, in particular, we saw some focus on the tribe of Ephraim as they were able to capture and kill the princes of the Midianites. And so uh, Mo, uh, excuse me, Gideon had called ahead for the other Israelites to, to kind of block up the waterways to keep the uh, Midianites from, from getting away where they didn't want them to go. At least that's what the text sounds like. And so they were to uh, kind of block up the waterways all the way down to uh, Beth Barah, which would have been down uh, in this part of the Jordan River. Now, what we saw last week is that uh, as the princes were fleeing ahead of Gideon and the 300 plus the other tribes that had now come alongside them, uh, they were behind as they were, as they were pursuing the Midianites. So uh, they probably left this area. They were pursuing down here and somewhere here in the Jordan River area. Uh, they pursued those princes over the Jordan. Uh, we know that they had probably already made it over the Jordan because it's said in the text that uh, the Ephraimites uh, came back across uh, the Jordan to Gideon once they had killed the princess. So it is likely that Gideon and the rest of the Israelites were still about right here while some of the uh, Midianites had escaped to this portion of the map. And that's what we're going to see tonight. So uh, that's kind of where we've been, where the fighting was. Now the fleeing has come to here. Gideon and those with him are still right, right here while the rest of the Midianites have fled to the, that side of the Jordan River. So let's pray and then we'll continue on. Father God, we thank you for these words and I pray that we'll grow in them and learn something tonight, dear Lord, that we can put all these pieces together and that they would uh, help us to understand your word better, dear Lord, when we read it. Now I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Judges chapter 8, verse 4. Gideon and the 300 men came to the Jordan and crossed it. They were exhausted, but still in pursuit. He said to the men of Sukkoth, Please give some loaves of bread to the people who are following me, because they are exhausted. For I am pursuing Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. But the princes of Sukkoth asked, are Zeba and Zalbuna now in your hands that we should give bread to your army? Gideon replied, Very well. When the Lord has handed Zeba and Zalmuna over to me, I will trample your flesh on, the thor and on thorns and briars from the wilderness. So the scene is set for us now as they're fleeing. Obviously, the ones who are fleeing, uh, they're in need of sustenance to keep their strength up. So as Gideon now is crossing over the Jordan River, he comes to a place called Sukkoth. Now, it's not written on the map, but it would be about in this area right here is where Sukkoth would be. So 
Gideon goes and he asks these people of Sukkoth, look, would you give some provisions to our men who are coming? We are in pursuit of the kings of Midian and our men need food so they can keep their strength up. Now, it's important to realize who these people were uh, that Gideon was talking to, both in this account and the one that's coming in the next few verses. The people who are living on this side of the Jordan River are Israelites. They are part of God's people. Now, you may remember that from when we studied through Exodus or when we studied through Joshua as they were entering into the promised land. I know we've talked about this on a couple of occasions, but I'll remind you. There were three groups that stayed behind because they saw that the land on this side of the Jordan was good. And so half of the tribe of Manasseh, all of the tribe of Asher, and the tribe of Gad stayed on this side of the Jordan River. Now they had to go in and they had to help the other Israelites fight the enemies that was there when they first went into the Promised Land. But once the enemies were overtaken, uh, these two and a half tribes came back and they possessed this land on the eastern side of the Jordan River. So these people that, that uh, Gideon is talking to here, these are more than likely Israelite people. They should be willing to stand up and help and say, look, we are going to help you to provide for you and your people and the ones coming after you so that your strength can uh, be kept up and you can uh, pursue these kings and destroy them. They should have been willing to help since they were more than likely Israelites themselves, but they were not. When Gideon told them what, what he was doing, they said, well, you ain't captured them yet. You say you're going to capture them and you're going to, you're going to take them over, but you had not captured them yet. What they essentially were saying, well, what if we help you and in your pursuit of the kings, you don't overtake them? What if in your pursuit of them, they overtake you? Then what's going to happen? Then the kings are going to come back and they're going to, they're going to take it out on us. And so they said, we're not helping you, Gideon. We're not helping the other Israelites. You haven't caught the king yet, and until you've caught him and taken care of him, we're not trusting that you're going to have the ability to do it. That's what they were saying here to Gideon. Now, Gideon didn't take kindly to this. He essentially said, so be it. If this is the way you want it to be, he says, when the day comes that we do overtake the kings, we're going to come back, and with the thorns and the briars of this land, we are going to discipline you. And so... Uh, Gideon and those with him proceed on their way. They continue going eastward as they are chasing uh, these Ketamites and Midianites, the very few that are left, as they are trying to pursue them to overtake their kings. Let's read a little further. Verse 8, He went from there to Penuel and asked the same thing from them. The men of Penuel answered, just as the men of Sukkoth had answered. He also told the men of Penuel, When I return in peace... I will tear down this tower. So he's 0 for 2. Gideon is asking these local people, we need some help. Would you please provide for us? Give us what we need. Give us some food to eat. And the people of Peniel said, nope, we're not doing it either. They said the same thing that the people of Sukkoth said. And so now Gideon says, all right, well, you're going to pay the price for that. When we capture the kings, you also are going to suffer for not being faithful to help us and not trusting that the Lord would deliver our enemies over to us. Now, Penuel was a little further on over. If Sukkoth was in this area, Penuel was a little further over here. Now, I will add that there were two different Sukkoths that were mentioned. So if you begin to research that on the map, you may also see one down here in the Egypt area. That's a different place. This is 
the one we're talking about here is on the, on the eastern side of the Jordan River. So as they continue to go eastward, they are not getting any support or any help from the people who should be helping them as they are attempting to overtake these kings. Let's read a little further. Verse 10. Now Zeba and Zelmuna were in Karkor, and with them was their army of about 15,000 men who were all those left of the entire army of the Ketamites. Now, the Ketamites, some of your translations there again may say children of the east or sons of the east. Ketamite means someone from the east. Now, that would make sense. If they're chasing the Ketamites here who were from the east, well, they're going to the east. And so it would make sense that these sons or children of the east would be fleeing back to where they came from. And that's what the story shows us happening here, is these Ketamites are fleeing this way. Now, it could have just been that they were fleeing that way because that's the only way they could flee. All of Israel was behind them. They couldn't go that way. Uh, so it may have just simply been that's the way they had to go, or maybe they were going that way because uh, that was the way that they had known. Regardless, there wasn't many left who were fleeing because it says that there were only 15,000 men who were left. Now that's still a lot compared to the 300 Israelites that were with Gideon. Uh, but even still, it paled in comparison to what the Midianite and the Ketamite army started out as. Let's read a little further. Those who had been killed were 120,000 warriors. So that tells us how many people that there were that the, the Israelites were up against. If there were 15,000 left and 120,000 had been killed, that was 135,000 that the Israelites were going up against. So that kind of gives us the picture that we talked about a few weeks ago when Gideon and the 300 went up against this big, huge army. And now they had really uh, whittled them down. Now, when Gideon and the Israelites first went in, uh, you may remember that, that the army, uh, the, the Ketamites and Midianites, began to fight amongst themselves. Now, no doubt some of these would have been killed uh, once Gideon called in the other Israelites to begin to drive them out. Uh, it seems likely that some of the Israelites would have uh, destroyed some of these, but there weren't many left. There were only a handful left, so to speak, of what they originally started with. And so the Midianite forces had dwindled down. They were on the run. They were shrinking. And here comes Gideon uh, with these other tribes of Israel that he had recruited. And they are hot on their heels. And most importantly, they have the power of the Lord behind them as they pursue uh, their enemies. Let's read a little further. Verse 11. Gideon traveled on the caravan route east of Noba and Jogobah and attacked their army while the army was unsuspecting. Zeba and Zelmuna fled, and he pursued them. He captured these two kings of Midian and routed their entire army. All right, so it's finally over. They finally captured the kings of the Midianites, the ones that they had been pursuing, the ones who had been oppressing them for seven years. We were told that way back at the beginning of this story when we first started. Uh, they have finally overtaken these kings. They have destroyed their armies. They have killed their princes. And now they have overtaken the kings of the Midianites. Verse 13. Gideon, son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Herez. He captured a youth from the men of Sukkoth and interrogated him. The youth wrote down for him the names of the 77 princes and elders of Sukkoth. Then he went to the men of Sukkoth and said, Here are Zeba and Zelmuna. You taunted me about them, saying, Are Zeba and Zelmuna now in your power? that we should give you bread to your exhausted men? 
So he took the elders of the city, and he took some thorns and briars from the wilderness, and he disciplined the men of Sukkoth with him. He also tore down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. Now Gideon did exactly what he said he was going to do here. He disciplined those who should have been willing to stand beside them and help them in their time of need. Now, this is a good lesson for us because there may be times in our Christian walk where there are other brothers and sisters in Christ who are doing something for the Lord, and they may even come to us for assistance in some way, shape, or form. Perhaps it's provisions in the same way that we see uh, Gideon needing. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's prayer. Maybe it's just a helping hand. Maybe it's something, though, that's going to cause us to sacrifice or going to cause us to be put in harm's way. And we may count the cost, and we may not consider the cost uh, good enough. We may say, well, boy, the cost is really too high. Because if I take part in this, it may affect me in this way, or it may affect me in that way, in a negative way. It may bring harm to me. It may bring harm to my family. Therefore, I'm not going to help the one who has a need. Now, we need to be careful that we are not guilty of those type of things, because those things may indeed occur in our lives. Uh, but we need to, to be faithful to say, look, if we see that God has called somebody, now we don't know anybody's heart, but we look at people's fruit, and we can see most of the time and be able to discern by the Holy Spirit if they're doing the Lord's work. And if we have the opportunity and ability to help someone in a time of need to do what God has called them to do, uh, then, then, then we might need to trust in the Lord and have a little more faith in the Lord than we, than we otherwise would. If we see somebody else that's trusting in the Lord and having faith in the Lord to carry out what the Lord has called them to do, there may be times for us to assist them. We don't want to turn our backs on a brother or a sister in Christ. We don't want to turn our backs on the widows, on the poor, and the needy, and the orphans. That's what God's Word calls us to. That's what we are supposed to do. That is true and undefiled religion. Uh, to look after those who are in need, the widows and the orphans, and to keep ourselves unstained from sin. That's what the book of James tells us. These are the type of things that we are to do. Sometimes we have to trust the Lord and say we're going to have to get our hands a little dirty and things may not work out as smooth as we would want them to, but we're going to trust that the Lord is in control of this or that, whatever it may be, and we're going to join with other brothers and sisters in Christ to see that God's kingdom is built. Now, Gideon's brothers and sisters from these other tribes of Israel here had the opportunity to come alongside of them and help them. But instead, they chose not to. And as a result of that, they, they suffered the consequences there. When Gideon come back, not only was it the Midianites who were now under judgment, it was now these other groups that were under some judgment too and received from some discipline. Uh, exactly in the way that Gideon said, he wasn't speaking figuratively there when, he's, when he talked about the thorns and the briars of the land being what disciplined them. He literally came back and disciplined them with the thorns and the briars of the land as well as tearing down the tower at Penuel. Now, Penuel was a place that we may be familiar with if you've read through the Bible before in Genesis. You may remember that Jacob wrestled with an angel of God or God himself and he named the place, or the place was named, uh, Penuel. And so we're familiar with that place. So this is a place that had been inhabited uh, and been visited by uh, people of God for a long time. Uh, these people would have probably known about God in Penuel, and they should have had the trust in God, but they didn't. And as a result of that, uh, they suffered consequences as well. 
All right, let's read a little further. Verse 16. So he took the elders of the city, and he took some thorns and briars from the wilderness, and he disciplined the men of Sukkoth with them. He also tore down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. He asked Zeba and Zelmuna, What kind of men did you kill at Tabor? Now, we don't know details here of what happened other than this verse. Obviously, these kings had probably killed a lot of people, but in particular, Gideon was asking about a group that was killed at Tabor. And so he wanted justice to be served. He wanted, uh, he wanted to uh, see that these men answered for the crime that they had committed. And so he asked them about these men that were killed at Tabor. What kind of men did you kill? Let's read their response. They were like you, they said, each resembled the son of a king. Now, that's kind of some interesting uh, use of, of words there. There was something about these men that were killed that had a certain majestic sense to it. There was something about them, uh, maybe in a physical sense, maybe just in the way that they uh, led their lives. There was something about these men that even the kings uh, of Midian recognized that, that they were sons of of a king, or they look like sons of a king. Now, uh, they give him this answer. They give Gideon this answer of who these are. These are no doubt some people that Gideon knew. These were Israelite people at Tabor that these kings of Midian had killed. And uh, by their response, Gideon recognizes that they were like them. They probably had the same type of features. After all, the king said that they look like you, that is, like Gideon's, like Israelites. Let's read a little further. So he said, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had let them live, I would not kill you. Now, Gideon here was, was going to be just to these kings. Justice was going to be served. The kings here had taken the life of his brothers. He tells us exactly who these were that he had taken the life, these kings had taken the life of. And Gideon says here, look, if you had not killed them, if you had not treated them in that way, then I would not kill you. But because you have killed them, Gideon here is going to be just. He's going to bring justice uh, to this area upon these kings for the crimes that they had committed. So he tells in verse 20, then he said to Jether, his firstborn, get up and kill them. The youth did not draw his sword, for he was afraid because he was still a youth. Zeba and Zelmuna said, Get up and kill us yourself, for a man is judged by his strength. So Gideon got up, killed Zeba and Zelmuna, and took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. Now, that's a pretty intense story right there. And this is a good reminder, as we've seen all throughout the book of Judges, that God is faithful to deliver his people. Now, this was a unique time in the history of Israel in the way that God carried out these events. Now, we need to recognize that it was a unique time and not necessarily the blueprint for us to follow today. Now, God does want justice to be served, and one day, ultimately, justice will be served by Jesus Christ when he comes. Uh, vengeance is the Lord's, the Scripture tells us, and one day uh, that vengeance will be taken out on all those who do evil in the same way that it was taken out on these kings. Uh, but we must be careful to realize that this is the way that things were set up in this particular period. It may seem kind of gruesome, it may seem kind of evil, but God has always been a just God, and He will always be a just God. 
And in the book of Judges, it was these judges whom he chose uh, and enabled them to judge the land. Uh, They had the ability to judge the land and to destroy those who had come into the land and who were doing evil. God had given them that ability. He had given them that calling, and they were the ones who were over the land. It was a unique time because Israel didn't have any type of government like the other nations around them. They didn't have a king. Uh, They didn't have a structure like that. God was their leader, and they were simply to serve God and to follow him. Uh, So they, they had no one over them that was going to bring justice to them. But when all of these evil things come, God called up these judges so that they could judge rightly and they could deliver his people. Now, God still has the same desire today. He still wants to deliver his people. Now, when it comes to uh, this type of violent acts and war and things that are taking place, sometimes people may look to the Old Testament and look to the way war was done in situations like this and say, well, when we, go to, when we go to war with people, we should completely destroy them, and we should do that, and we should do this. Well, that'll be for you to decide when and if we should go to war or if we should not go to war, but things are different nowadays because God does not establish one person to be the judge of other people. Nowadays, we do serve in countries where there are kings or there are dictators, whether they are evil or whether they are good, uh, it's on them. God does put authorities in place, and so the whole structure of how things are handled and how situations are taken care of and how justice is served is a little different than the way things were then. Uh, I don't believe that scriptures such as these uh, give us the right or the ability to say, well, we're going to go in and we're going to do X, Y, and Z because that's the way they did it in the Old Testament. Well, unless God has called us to be a judge, and he probably has not, because we have a whole different structure with kings and presidents and leaders now, uh, this was a unique period of time in which God used uh, the people he called to serve him and to deliver his people and to rescue them from all that they were up against. Now, the same is true for us, except we have someone who is far greater than these judges of the book of Judges. We have Jesus Christ, who is the one who will one day serve uh, and, and bring justice. He's the one who the weight of the world is on his shoulders. He's the mighty counselor. He's the wonderful one. He is the Prince of Peace. That's what the scripture tells us. That's what Isaiah prophesies. And that's what we think about in this time of year when we begin to think about Christmas. Because exactly what all of the judges and all of the kings that came after the judges were to do, what they were to do is they were to protect the people, they were to deliver the people from their enemies, and they were to bring justice to the people. Now, that's exactly what Jesus Christ does because the judges failed at this because the kings failed at this. They could bring peace for a little while. We know that because we read these judges and it'll say there was peace in the land for 40 years or 80 years or whatever amount of time it was, but they could only bring peace for a little while. They could only bring deliverance for a little while. The people would only listen to the kings for a little while. They would only have a good king for a little while and then they would have a bad king. And so the system, the way it was, was meant to look after the people and take care of the people and bring justice to the people. But it was a system that was destined to fail. And that's what we celebrate when we come to this Christmas season. We celebrate a new system, a better system that is not destined to fail, but that has already succeeded 
in Jesus Christ. That's what we celebrate, is that Jesus Christ has been crucified and been resurrected. He is victorious. He is a righteous judge. He is a holy king. And one day he is going to come back and he is going to make all things good for all of eternity for those who put their trust in him. Now, there were some of the Israelites, of course, who trusted the Lord. But there were some, as we saw tonight, that didn't really have their trust in the Lord. Now, we have to make the decision as to who we are going to follow. Because in the same way that the people of Sukkoth and Penuel didn't listen to Gideon and they faced discipline because they didn't trust the Lord and the one the Lord had sent, so the same will be true for you and I. <clears throat> as the Lord has sent for us Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, to die for us so that He may be raised and we may be forgiven, if we put our faith and trust in Him. Now, some of us may look at that and say, boy, when we count the cost, we say, boy, it's too hard to follow Jesus. It may be too hard for me. It may mean that I have to suffer in this way or that way. And so we make that choice. Are we going to follow the one that God has sent, that has provided a way for us, that has overtaken the enemy? Well, that's exactly what Gideon was. That's exactly what Gideon did. He went in. He was called by God. He did what God said. He trusted the Lord, and he drove out the enemy. And Jesus Christ did that far more than what Gideon did. He has come in, and he has been faithful to the Father. He has destroyed the enemy. And now he is telling us the same thing that Gideon was telling the people. Look, all right, here we come. Be part of what I'm part of. And that's what Jesus wants for us. He wants us to be part of his kingdom. When Jesus came and said the kingdom of God has come near, he wants us to enter into that kingdom. Now we have to decide, are we going to have the right response, like Gideon? And like those who were with him, or are we going to have the response of the people of Sukkoth and say, I'm not going to do it? Because there's coming a day that God's word tell us that, look, okay, if we're going to reject Jesus Christ, there's coming a day when he's coming back. In the same way that Gideon came back when he said, all right, you've had your opportunity, but one day I'm coming back, and when I come back too, it's going to be bad. And that's exactly what happened in the case of Gideon and Sukkoth and Penuel. And that's exactly what's going to happen to us. Jesus Christ has come. He's invited us to be part of his kingdom and to follow him and to trust him. And one day he's coming back. And if we don't follow him and trust him, we will suffer discipline far greater than what the ones who were under the hand of Gideon suffered. Let us not be like those, but let us be like those who follow Jesus and trust him to know that he is a righteous king, that he is a righteous judge, and one day he's coming back to bring us home if we put our faith and trust in him. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you tonight and we thank you for these words. And I pray that you help us to live by them and to learn from them. And I pray that you help us just to uh, keep in our mind Israel and the things that they have gone through and done and the way that they turn from you, dear Lord, and help us to see that in our own lives when those time comes that we may turn from you, dear Lord, that we may not trust you the way we should. But let us be more like Gideon and less like those people of Sukkoth, dear Lord, that we'd be willing to stand for you no matter how tough it may look, no matter what odds are stacked against us, dear Lord, that we would hear what your word says and we would do what you call us to do, dear Lord. I pray that you give us strength that if you call any of us in here to something specific, dear Lord, maybe there's somebody in here right now that you're calling them to, some, to something to serve you in some way. And maybe they're afraid or scared, but God, I pray that you give them strength to carry it out, dear Lord. And I pray that you help us to look forward to the day that Jesus Christ returns, that we don't have to dread that day, dear Lord, that we don't have to look to that day with fear, but God, we can look to that day with hope, knowing that if we put our faith and trust in Jesus, God, that we know we're forgiven. 
And we know that when he comes back, we won't face your judgment, but we'll face your deliverance. And God, we thank you for that. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.